0: Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word.
1: And now, here is pastor and author, Mark Fontecchio. The United States of America once had an emperor. Now, that may shock some of you, but it's true. This is according to the confused mind of Joshua A. Norton. Now, Norton, he lived in San Francisco. This was way back. This was during the gold rush days in the 1800s, and he was kind of an interesting guy. He was a colorful character. When speculation in the rice markets brought him to financial ruin, something happened in his mind. You ever see someone like that where just something shifts, something happened in his mind. And he declared himself emperor of the United States. Now it might have started just as a practical joke. He might've been doing it for that reason. It might've been the result of a clouded mind. It's hard to know. However, it started Norton's pretending, soon grew into a delusion and it kept kind of growing and growing and growing. In 1859, he published a proclamation that he was emperor according to an act of the California legislature. And then he he got into the, the bit a little bit and he he got himself a costume. See, he stuck a plume in his hat and he found a cape and He marched the streets in his colorful costume. He even got a sword out and walked around with a sword. You could do that back then. Well, the citizens of San Francisco were more amused by him than anything, so they just kind of played along with this. They didn't really get too threatened by his actions. And they gave him recognition to free concerts and events. They just let him in to all these different events. He was invited to openings of businesses and celebrations. They even allowed him to collect a small tax and issue his own currency. It was all done in the spirit of fun. But to Norton, this was serious business to him. People would pay for his meals as he went places. That's not a bad deal. He got the police to actually salute him as he walked through the streets And he expanded his authority after a while. He decided the United States wasn't enough. So he expanded his authority to become the emperor of these United States and the protector of Mexico. When he died in 1880, just to give you an idea of how big of a thing this was, when he died in 1880, at least 10,000 people, some say up to 30,000 people, flooded the streets to attend his funeral. It was one of the largest funerals ever to take place in California. And he lived and died of his own delusion of importance. Now, he didn't hurt anybody. He was just a little deluded. But to most people, he brought a bit of a smile and a chuckle to those that came across him. But make no mistake about it, Joshua A. Norton was never really the emperor at all. He had insisted that he was, but if he had a confrontation with the government, we all know how that would have ended, even back then. That would have ended very quickly, and he would have been disposed of, and he would have been probably putting in a sane asylum for the rest of his life. But I would like you to imagine this morning something a little more serious, something more serious. Imagine the poor soul who enters eternity convinced that life was all about them. Imagine that, that that person was the focus of the universe. See, we see a lot of people living like that today, don't we? We see a lot of people living like that. But what if that person entered into eternity like that? This is one of them startling reminders that we see in the book of Revelation for the unbelievers, of course, judged by God in Revelation 20 at the great white throne judgment. But even for the believers in eternity, even for the the redeemed saints of God in eternity, we're reminded in Revelation 21 that the future plan that God has for us, it's not really about us. I mean, yes, he's promised us some great things, but it's not about us. It's about his glory. It's about his honor, his purpose, his worship in eternity. Now we've already seen in Revelation that the Bible's title for the Lord is very accurate. Very, very accurate. He is the king of kings and what? Lord of lords. So no pretend emperor is ever going to take his place. Now there was a day when Jesus looked something like an earthly king. The crowds welcomed him to Jerusalem with traditions that were only reserved back then for royalty. Do you remember when he entered into Jerusalem, they spread their cloaks down on the ground and they waved these palm branches. Well, those were politically charged palm branches back in that day. This would be like waving the don't tread on me flag in the capital right now this is what it would be like. It would get some attention. Palm branches were symbols of victory and freedom back then to the Jewish people. It was a public declaration that they were looking to Jesus to free them from the Roman rule and reestablish the sovereign nation of Israel. Give them freedom from Rome. Same thing we're looking for today. They sang songs of praise to Jesus as he came riding in, entering into the city. And they had full expectations that the political and military change was just one simple miracle of God away. Now, as we get to the book of Revelation, that day has come. That day has come for the nation of Israel. The kingdom of Christ on earth has come. Christ ruling on the old earth for a thousand years. The final rebellion that we looked at last week. The final judgment. And now we look to the new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21. Now people have a lot of different ideas today about what heaven is going to be like. In the 1800s, they had a strange view of heaven. The dominant picture of heaven in the 1800s that many people had was that heaven is like a Victorian garden. And that was because of Elizabeth Stuart Phelps, she wrote a novel in 1868 that was a bestseller for decades. Now, why did this novel take off? Well, 1868 not that long after the Civil War. See, and many people had lost their loved ones in the Civil War. Well over 600,000 people died in the Civil War. And when that many people die in a nation that didn't have that many people as we do today... That gets your attention. So she wrote this book. And in her novel, she depicted heaven as a place where the dead live in houses, seems silly to us, but they live in houses surrounded by flowers and birds. And she described this fine dog, this fine dog sunning himself on the steps. And she later claimed, of course, that this book came from divine inspiration. But this book had a popular effect on the culture. It changed people's understanding of heaven. And then when Billy Graham started preaching in 1950, he described heaven by saying this, listen to what he said. He said, we're going to sit around the fireplace and have parties and the angels will wait on us and we'll drive down the golden streets in yellow Cadillac convertibles. Well, he later regretted saying that, of course. But this confusion continues today. The bestsellers out there like Heaven is for Real, where four-year-old Colton Burpo described his near-death vision in heaven as sitting on the lap of Jesus. But we don't get our theology from four-year-olds. And I know that Paul was a little more restrained in his own description of heaven in the Bible when he described it in 2 Corinthians 12, telling us this, when he said, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. So what do we know about heaven? Well, join me this morning in Revelation 21. We start with verse one, where it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, heaven is for real. That's the good news. You may have thought that if you came here this morning. Heaven is for real. The word heaven appears several times in these verses, and so we need to be careful because it can be a bit confusing as we walk through this text. Now, in John's time, heaven and earth or the heavens and earth referred to what we call the universe, not to where God lives. In verse one, the first heaven and the first earth that passed away is the universe that we live in. Now we build better telescopes and better rockets to just uh, try to understand all of this out there in space and all of the creation that God has created for us it will pass away at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. It will pass away. Second Peter three tells us that the original creation of God will perish. This is a brand new creation. I'm convinced of that from scripture, which is the fulfillment of the prophetic word of God. Look what was written down so long ago in Isaiah 65 verse 17. It says for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. Or from Isaiah 66, we read this. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. See, the beautiful truth of Scripture is that God has already made us new creations in Christ. That's a glorious thing. He's already made us as believers, as the called out people of God, new creations in Christ. Praise God. But on this day, God is going to make the rest of his creation new. Satan has really polluted. You want to talk about pollution and and climate change. Satan's defiled this world. He's wrecked this world more than anything you can do. But God will make a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to make it all brand new. And God's not going to just spit shine it up, not just renovate the earth. He's going to make it brand new. Remember what we saw last week in Revelation 20 verse 11. It said, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. So our eternal home is the new heaven and the new earth created by God for us. Now, our eternal home, our eternal future place that we're going to dwell is not within the universe that we presently know now. It is not bound by the physical laws of our universe. Our eternal home is real and the exact nature of it is a mystery that is only known to God. As the apostle Paul said in first Corinthians two, he said, but as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit for the spirit searches all things. Yes. The deep things of God. All that we know about our future home needs to come from the word of God. All that we know about eternity needs to come from the scriptures. It is what the Holy Spirit has revealed to us in the precious word of God. And in Revelation 21, John gives us a glimpse of what he saw. Notice what he says in verse two. He says, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, here we look at this text and heaven refers to a particular place in all of God's reality where God himself is enthroned in power and glory. Psalm 103 verse 19 explains it to us. It says, the Lord has established his throne where in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. See, God reigns in heaven. God is also omnipresent. Now we use that term. What does that mean? Well, it simply means that God is everywhere present. God is everywhere present. So that's an important truth for us as believers in Christ. Why do we say that? Because God is always with us. When we don't feel close to God, I don't think that's on God. I think it's on us. That's our problem. That's our sin keeping us out of fellowship as believers with God. But look at the beautiful promise that's tucked into Isaiah 57, verse 15, telling us that God is near to us when we make room for him in our lives. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits the eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. Watch this. With him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. See, God is exalted. God lives forever. He is perfectly holy, but he dwells with the contrite. He dwells with the humble spirit. He dwells among them to encourage and enable them. But because God might seem far away, what did he do in the Old Testament? Well, in the Old Testament, God established Jerusalem as a holy city, a place where his presence and his reign over his people would be celebrated. Jerusalem was where God's anointed king was enthroned and where God was living and present in the temple. But now in John's vision, what do we see? We see a new heaven and a new earth with a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. God will reign from the new Jerusalem as a king. It is a holy city prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, this is a description. This is a description of the city, not meant to tell us that the new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, the church, but a description of the city, beautiful like a bride prepared for marriage to her husband. Now, this holy city that John is beginning to describe here. It is beyond our comprehension, but I know this. I do know some things that I've seen in scripture that Hebrews eleven sixteen, it does say that God has prepared a heavenly city for who? For the old Testament saints. I also know that the Old Testament saints of God, the saints of Israel, were often described as the bride of God to Yahweh, not the bride of Christ, bride of God to Yahweh. And in the New Testament, the bride of Christ is who? The church. The church is the bride of Christ. The bride of the Messiah is the church. Now, this new city is the future home to all of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament saints, because the name of a city often stands for the people who make up that city. The bride is the people of God, and the seat of their abode is the new Jerusalem. The new heaven and the new earth is the future hope of all who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's your future home right there. The most important thing about this city is that God is there and he dwells there among his people. John described this city in terms of a bride adorned for her husband, pure, radiant, elegant and stunning. Every beautiful thing that is in this world right now, it comes from one of two places. Every beautiful thing in this world is either a memory of paradise at creation or is looking ahead to the world to come in the new creation. That's it. This beautiful city descends directly from God, built not by human hands, not by human hands, but built by the word of God himself. And certainly the words of Christ to the disciples before he went to the cross come to mind in John 14, 2, where he said this in my father's house are many mansions, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now you may have noticed back in verse one that there'll be no more sea. Revelation 21 tells us that there's gonna be a lot of changes. There's gonna be a lot of changes. In fact, I went through the text the other day and I counted up 12 things. And if you can't read all those, don't worry about it. I put the chart on the website for you. There's 12 things that are missing, 12 things that are specifically listed as missing in Revelation 21 from the new heaven and the new earth that we are very, very used to. It says that there'll be no more sea. Why? Because chaos and calamity will be eradicated. There'll be no more tears because hurtful memories will be replaced. No more death because mortality will be swallowed up by life. There'll be no more mourning because sorrow will be completely comforted. No more crying because the souls of weeping people will be soothed. No more pain because all human suffering, all human suffering will be cured. There'll be no more thirst because God will graciously quench all desires. No more wickedness because by this point, all evil and wickedness will be banished. No more temple we're going to learn. Why? Because the father and the son are personally present with God's people. No more night because God's glory will give eternal light. No more closed gates because God's doors will always be open. No more curse because Christ's blood has forever lifted the curse. Now, we're going to take these one at a time as we move through the text. But why no more see? Well, we're not given, if you walk through Revelation 21, you're not given as much as maybe you'd like to see in the text about the future that we have in the new heaven and new earth. But the Bible is very specific here. It, it, it makes a point of saying no more sea. Now, we tend to like water. We like to go out fishing. We like cruises, girls. We like cruises. Yes, we like that. We like transportation and Coast Guard. Yes, we like water. We like a walk on the beach, ladies. Right now, water covers, of course, most of the earth, but not on the new earth. It's going to be changed. We'll put the Bible back into the context of when it was written. To those living then, the sea was a terrifying place. The sea was a dangerous place back then. It brought about chaos and had the power to kill without warning, and it still does. Travel by sea was dangerous. You didn't want to get too far from land. You wanted to be able to see the land when you're out on a ship, but you didn't want to get too close because you'd get to the rocks and you'd hit the rocks. The sea represented disorder and chaos, the things of the old creation, and it was the sea that kept John trapped on the island of Patmos, separate from the churches of Asia. This will be a radically different planet, a new creation for God's glory and his people. I was reading about a young Bible college student from Africa. He came to the United States to study. And I, I love it hearing about these guys that come from a different country and come here to study because it's such a culture shock. We were talking about some of that this morning. He was preaching his first sermon. It was one of these basic preaching classes that you take. And he chose a text describing the joys that we will share when Christ returns and ushers us into our new heavenly home. And listen to what this young man named Lawrence said. He said, I've been in the United States for several months now. I've seen the great wealth that is here. I've seen the fine homes. I've seen the cars. I've seen the clothes. I've listened to many sermons in many churches here, but I have yet to hear one sermon about heaven because Everyone in this country has so much. No one preaches about heaven. People don't seem to need it. In my country, he said, most people have very little. So we preach on heaven all the time. We know how much we need it. And I think he's got something there. He absolutely does. And I would say this, that our wealth that we have today in this country, in this room, our wealth makes us poor, spiritually poor. The way we live enslaves us. The way we're living enslaves us. It enslaves us to a system that is completely designed to take us further and further away from God, the God that we love. Our future in Christ is an afterthought. Many of us don't live like we belong to that future now. We will spend the rest of our lives in the kingdom of Christ And man, it should be the steady passion of our souls. It should be the steady passion of our minds. Now, John continues in verse three. Watch what he says. He says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The dwelling place of God, the place that we as the righteous of God belong to dwell in the future is the new Jerusalem, not a city built by hands. But right now it is where God is in the invisible heavens. But one day this city will descend down to the new earth. Then and only then can the words be said, behold, the tabernacle of God will be with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. This is amazingly enough, the city that Abraham himself looked for, isn't it? The words of Hebrews eleven ten come to mind. It says in Hebrews eleven ten that Abraham waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now this city is, Right now in heaven, it's above. Paul said this in Galatians 4.26, an amazing thing. And what John is describing right now in Revelation, this will be a a permanent state. This is the eternal state. Christ's kingdom starts at the second coming of Christ. The first part of it is the millennium. It's not a separate kingdom. People say that all the time. It's not. Don't call it the millennial kingdom. That's a mistake a lot of the old commentators made. They made that mistake and it's kind of gotten stuck in the church. One kingdom of Christ. He's going to usher in one kingdom. And it's going to be having different aspects. The millennial aspect of the kingdom. Then comes the eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth. God's presence among his people will be permanent. Glory to God. It's going to last forever, forever. And then verse four tells us that the presence of God on earth brings a number of changes. Wickedness cannot dwell in God's presence. I can't wait for that. I can't wait. All traces of evil will be gone. They'll be eradicated. Anything associated with the old earth will have passed away, never to return. And because of the abiding presence of God, it will not even be possible for death, mourning, crying, or pain to make an appearance. They're going to be gone forever. We'll be untouched by the troubles of life. That's great. For all eternity in this future home, God is preparing for us now. We won't have the troubles we have now. It is the eternal state when there'll be no more tears. Now these, I want you to be careful because there's a lot of misunderstanding about these tears. These are not going to be tears of repentance that God is going to wipe away. In other words, this is not God. Wiping away tears because we're sitting in heaven, weeping and weeping and weeping over and over against our sin. If you are a child of God by faith, your sins are already positionally taken care of once for all. They're done. They're, they're taken care of, wiped away. These are tears that were caused because of life in the old creation. In other words, the hurts, the loss of those who were never reconciled to God by faith. This is after believers are judged, given rewards and a loss of rewards. It highlights the compassion and love of God. There will be no sorrow, no death, no pain, no tears. It's the final reversal of the curse of sin. And these things will be gone forever. Glory to God, never to return. Think of this. There'll be no funerals, no more funerals, no more graves. Don't spend too much money on that grave marker because you're not going to need it. It's going to burn. And if you belong to Christ, you're not going to need it neither because you'll be with Christ right in your new glorified body long, long before this. There'll be no more broken homes, no more broken families, no more broken hearts. But if you have in your mind a concept of heaven where we just go into this unconscious state and float around in the clouds, you're missing it. You should recognize that the eternal state of believers in scripture, it gives us a picture of life. There's life there. There's a city there. There's definitely life there with God and his people. It's a glorious future and I look forward to it with all my heart. I cannot wait. Have you ever thought about your biggest regret in life? I mean, everybody's got some regrets. Have you ever thought about your biggest regret in life? Most people, when they talk about their biggest regret, they include one important word in it. Students from Strayer University set up a chalkboard on the sidewalk by one of the squares in New York City for just one day, just one day. At the top of the board was written, write your biggest regret. They provided colored chalk and they set up a video camera to sit there and watch people as they wrote on this board. And the chalkboard attracted quite a few people that were walking by, and it was soon overflowing with all sorts of words that were written with regrets from wounds of the heart. And it said things like this, burning bridges, never speaking up, not being a good husband, should have spent more time with my family, staying in my comfort zone, not saying I love you, not making the most of every day, not being a better friend. And as the board filled up with so many different stories, they noticed that almost all of these regrets had one thing in common. Do you see it? They nearly all had the word not in them. They were about opportunities not taken. They were about words not spoken. They were about dreams never pursued. But then they gave these same people an eraser and wrote clean slate at the top of the chalkboard. And as she erased her regret, one young woman had tears in her eyes as she said this, I feel hopeful. It means that there's possibilities. And that's really the message of Revelation 21 for the child of God, feel hopeful. Because of the finished work of Christ on the cross, we have a clean slate, amen. We have a clean slate in Jesus Christ. Our sins and our regrets are washed away in Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful thing. Share that message of hope. Share that message of comfort. Tell others about the new life in Christ that we have. Because people that you meet every day in this world carry a weight of regrets that something fierce hidden below the surface of their lives. Everybody's faking it out there. They all have their own pains. They all have their own regrets. They all have their own hurts. People need to hear about the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ and then start living like you belong to Christ. Start living like you belong to a future kingdom that is glorious. Each day should be a day of hope because there's a time coming when we're going to be with our God for all eternity and there's no more death and there's no more sorrow and there's no more tears and no more pain and all the sorrow and sadness of life will be gone in a place that is filled with the glory of God. So no Christian, that whatever you are going through right now in your life, it does not have the last word. God has written the final chapter of history. And so verse 5 tells us, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely. To him who thirsts. Now, look at these words in verse five. These words ought to give you some hope. Behold, I make all things new. John leaves the subject of the New Jerusalem to record these words from God. There's an interesting text in Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. Paul was skipping stones and just kind of touching on just the surface of many, many important truths about the end times. But I want you to notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. See, Paul talks about the rapture of the church. And then speaking of Christ and his rule, Paul says, starting in verse 24, watch what he says. He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, the end is the end of the heavens and the earth. All enemies of Christ put under his feet. The last enemy destroyed his death, which doesn't happen until after the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Christ will abolish all other rules, authority and power at the end of the millennium. But then look at verse 27. Here comes a powerful teaching. It says, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. See, Paul saw Jesus Christ as the person who fulfilled the prophecy recorded in Psalm 8, that all things would be put under the feet of Jesus Christ. Christ in his role, and I want you to hear this, Christ in his role will be subject to the Father, that God may be all in all. When the new creation is fulfilled in Revelation 21, Christ will turn over his reign to the Father. Christ will submit to the Father. So, when we come back to Revelation 21, we understand that the mediatorial aspect of the kingdom, meaning Christ as our mediator, this will actually come to an end. Because we're going to have a direct relationship with the Father. But the Son will still be directly involved in his kingdom, still on his throne, still worshiped as God, but we're going to have a direct relationship with God the Father. And the message from the throne continues in verse six in our text where it says it is done. I am the alpha and the mega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. It is the fulfillment of the eternal life that's been promised to us. Boy, it makes me think of the words of Christ in the gospel of John to the woman at the well where he said this in John four, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. You see those with life in Christ will be able to drink of the fountain of water of life freely for all eternity. This is not about physical thirst in Revelation and it, just as it was not about physical thirst in John chapter 4, it's about spiritual thirst that only in Christ we can find the satisfaction of the soul. That's why when we're searching throughout all of life looking for answers, you're only going to find it in Jesus Christ. You're only going to find it in Christ. So quit looking to the world. You're not going to find it there. You're only going to find the satisfaction of the soul, so richly and freely given to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That beautiful, beautiful gospel message. Revelation is describing the completion of the new creation. This is why God says from the throne, it's done. It's done because he is the Alpha. He is the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, because God is the beginning and the end. And then look at the beautiful promise in verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Verse 7 is a promise to the people of God that we're going to inherit all things. We will inherit all that God has promised. First John 5 says that those who believe that Jesus is the son of God are the overcomers. He will be our God for all of eternity. And we are identified as sons, meaning we are identified as rightful heirs of God forever. But there is a strong warning here in verse 8, a very, very strong warning. To those who live with unbelief, to the lost, the cowardly, the unbelieving, those people are identified by their actions because why? They're still dead in their sins. They're still dead. They don't have the identity that we have in Christ. So therefore, they are seen by God in position as still dead in their sin. The immoral, murderous idolaters that they are, their future is It's It's just as secure as ours. It's in the lake of fire and brimstone. This is the second death, eternal separation from God. I'd like you to meet Anson Hoy. At the age of three, young Anson was diagnosed with glycogen storage disease. Some of these diseases I've never even heard of. It's pretty rare. Basically means his body can't break down or store sugars. He has to be fed frequently all throughout the day, drinking just raw cornstarch. Doesn't sound that great. At nighttime, the feedings are through a pump that's hooked into a tube that has been surgically implanted into his stomach. At age five, he experienced developmental delays that doctors feared were connected to autism. And at that point in life, he couldn't speak sentences with more than three syllables. Three syllables. He couldn't do that. And he became a target, of course, for the kids at school. And no wonder that Anson often asked at that time, why did God put me here. But Anson discovered with time that he had an amazing gift, an amazing gift. He said this, while everyone else was busy talking, I listened and I listened to all the sounds around me. His listening skills helped him develop another gift, absolute perfect pitch. Anson discovered that he could memorize and then master complex piano pieces like Mozart's concerto in D minor. And he could do it with astounding speed and accuracy and proficiency. And as he's grown, even though he's got a difficult life, he's won a number of awards. He's performed in Carnegie Hall and he's played around the world in Europe and Asia. He's played in more than 20 countries. He's, he's developed into quite a musician. But here's what I like about this young man, his trials and his gifts, they have led him to declare his deep faith in the living God. Listen to his words. They're glorious. He says this, and I quote, I can't decide for myself many things that God has already planned, but I can still choose to work on my dream because I still have workable hands and a body to do it. I believe every life is unique and special. Each has its own mission and purpose. Anson then discovered that he had a tumor in his liver, which led to a liver transplant, but he's still he still looks to God's faithfulness. In a later interview, he said, I know there's always a reason for God to give a special body and a talent. My dream, he says, is to be a tool for God. How good is that? So in the end, he says, I can hand in a beautiful report to my Lord in heaven with honor. And the most important thing, he says, is I will never regret this journey that I have on earth give me 20 like him. Give me 20 like him. I love this kid's attitude because this is how every single one of us is to be living. I meet a lot of people with a lot of regrets, but what I love about the Christian faith is Christ gives a believer a clean start every single day. Every day in Christ, we have a clean start. And whether you believe it or not, heaven is a real place. I'm going there. I'm going there. Heaven is the eternal destiny of everyone who puts his faith in Jesus Christ. This belief and understanding should change our perspective on everything. It should change our perspective on how we live, on suffering. Didn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians 4:17 he said for our light affliction which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And again, over in Romans 8, 18, he said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. See, our belief in a future with Christ should make us take another look at our priorities. It should. This is why Christ said in Matthew 6:20, but lay up for yourselves treasures where? In heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal. How we spend our money is a reflection of the heart. Some of you are living like you're packing for heaven, trying to take all your toys with you. Good luck with that. Christ is after, yeah, your wallet, because he wants what's behind that wallet. He wants your heart. He wants your minds. He wants your thoughts. He wants your walk with him of faith. 1 Peter 2.11, you think Peter was motivated about this subject? He said, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And again, in Colossians 3.2, Paul says this, set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. See, the Bible doesn't tell me everything about my future with God, but it tells me enough to, to know that it's something to look forward to. And that's what I need. It's something to live for now. And I believe this. I believe my home is in heaven and my part in the coming kingdom of Christ on earth is secure. And it gives me every motivation to live by faith as a child of God now in the son of God. God has given me enough information in his word to have hope. I don't need to know more than what he's revealed, but I do need to do this. And so do you. I need to let this hope transform me. I need to let this hope transform my walk. First John three, two, it teaches beloved. Now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Then look at the very next verse. Here's the reason we study about our future with Christ. It's right here. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Knowing about our future promise to those who trust Christ is meant to have a purifying effect on our lives. See, knowledge of the promises of God, plus the hope, plus the hope it gives us now in the present, it's meant to increase our purity in Jesus Christ. Just as the coming of the new heaven and new earth will annihilate the impurities of this corrupt and fallen world, so it is that our transforming relationship with Jesus Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit should change our condition. It should change how we're living for Jesus Christ. I don't know why some people come to church, because it doesn't ever change. It should change our condition, how we live out our faith in Christ and purify our lives. So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let his grace encourage you and let his hope comfort you. Take comfort from that hope until the day when Jesus Christ makes all things new to the praise and the glory of our Father. Amen.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry,